had a little book in his, uh, open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left on the land and cried with a loud voice like a, when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders have uttered. Do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, and there should be a delay no longer. Or some of your versions might say that there should be time no longer. Um, But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he has declared to his servants and his prophets. Then the voice which I heard from the heavens spoken to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand in the angel in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. He said, Take it and eat it. It'll make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet like honey in your mouth. So I took the book out of his hand and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many people, nations, tongues, and kings. Uh, and I just want to go into this just to give some context so we understand that um, that chapter 10 does actually go into chapter 11. He says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood. So this is the same angel saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Leave out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it's been given to the Gentiles. Now we're going to go over this again. But I want to see that, that chapter 10 transitions. Uh, it is a transition. We're still kind of at the end of that sixth trumpet. We talked about uh, the fall of Constantinople uh, last week to, uh, to the uh, Ottoman Turks. And, uh, and all of the really interesting things. And this is kind of this transition. It's sort of a phase of that or at least something going on at a similar time frame uh, before, this, uh, before this, last, um, this last woe. Here, that's going to be in, um, in chapter, chapter 11, at the end of chapter 11. So I uh, want to look at this transition period and uh, the little scroll. If you notice that each of our... Uh, have you noticed that each of these items, there's, there's something that draws your attention to it, right? Uh, there's all sorts of details, but in every section, there's something that draws your attention. It's the, it's the subject of that section. It might be, it might be uh, a white horse, or it might be 144,000, or whatever the thing is that it might be, uh, this a, a locust or whatever it is that draws you in and, and all the other details are around it. And so um, if you have a, a, the headings, it might say a little book or a little scroll. Um, that's where our attention is drawn. So we're going to look at some of the things around this little scroll and what this little scroll might be. It's kind of weird, isn't it? little scroll. Uh, well, what is... This angel. What does an angel signify? Okay, some, some sort of message, message, right? And we want to look at how he is. What is the, the first picture is he's, he's got this rainbow. Where have we seen a rainbow before? No. Okay. More recently in the book of Revelation, where have we seen 
a rainbow. Okay, we've seen this uh, all around God's throne, this green-looking rainbow, right? And so we see this also around his head. And so I think it kind of signifies this divine source, this something to this angel, this this scroll that has a divine source. Uh, And we see a cloud and a fire. Where have we seen cloud and fire before? Moses, okay, so, so he's got these legs of fire and he's clothed with a cloud. We, this picture, what's the picture? Okay, so it's, it's guidance, isn't it? So all these things go into this scroll. Guidance and, and something from God, some divine source, some divine message. Lion, what, what's the lion? Okay, lion of Judah. Okay, who was? In Revelation, is the lion in Revelation? Christ is the lion. So, so again, there's some connection to Christ uh, with this thing. Now, this is interesting, the sea and the land. We're going to probably get into this a little bit later um, as we look. There's this not really enough detail because the sea and the land really haven't, I mean, we've seen them before in different ways. Uh, when we've seen some of the military conquests, but we're going to come back to this a little bit. Um, I want to look at the seven voices. Uh, we have different things that these could be. And I've, I've said I don't feel comfortable trying to get into numerology. I, I don't like that, because I, I, you can make any number anything you want. right? I can know the five things of grace, and the seven is the perfect, and three is God, and and the Bible never says any of that anywhere. If it did, that would be wonderful. I, when there's a Bible key to use, I'll use it, right? But but when there's not, I don't feel uh, I don't feel uh, comfortable speaking uh, where God hasn't permitted me. So the only thing I can come up with is that we've seen numerous times seven angels, right? We've seen uh, we've seen them. Uh, uh, with reference to uh, to the churches, we've seen them with references to trumpets. We've seen them. We'll see them again with references to bowls and and all these various things. We've seen seven angels giving these messages. Now maybe they mean something prophetic. Maybe they're not seven angels. Uh, some say, "Oh, it's the Holy Spirit," and it's um maybe. I, I don't know. Uh, so I wish I did. But. Uh, uh, they do utter something, and that's important, isn't it? They utter this message, and, and so we have this continual picture around a message, some divine message that has to do with a scroll. Time no more. What are we talking about? What's that? Okay, so that's the first thing. If I'm reading this, the way it was written, I'm like, well, this is the end of time. Okay? Um, however, the problem being that we're in Revelation 9, and there's a lot more to go. <laughs> so I don't think that it would be accurate for me to say this is the end of time, because then Revelation 9 would be the last chapter in the Bible. Right? Yes? So whenever mine says there will be no more delay. Okay. So I that's... Like, I feel like it's more, this is the beginning of the end. Okay. All right, what, we're, so what year, anybody who can, can remember last week, what year did we leave off in last week? Read your notes. All right, the minutes from the meeting here. Any date that stood out? 
Okay, we left off in 1453. So, so if that if that is correct interpretation, we should see some event right around 1453. We should be somewhere right in that vicinity. If not, then maybe we want to go back to the end of time discussion, right? So, so, so these kind of really, to me, these are the best two. It's either no more delay or there's no more time. Um, so let's. Uh, Talks about a book or a scroll. What is the what's your attention drawn to when you discuss a book? Content. What's that? Content. Okay, content. Sweet to the taste. What does that signify? Okay. Something good. What's that? Okay. It, it, it's when I think of because he's going to talk about something that's sweet to the taste, and then he's going to talk about it being bitter in his stomach. Right. So, so there's like two effects. It's like a. It starts out one way, and, and then it it goes sideways on you. Yeah. For some reason, that kind of reminds me of one of the scenes in the parable of the sower. Like they receive with great joy at first, and like, oh, this is great, and then you. Okay, so so sweet to the taste. Yeah. Also, I think I think uh, gossip was in Proverbs was was defined as sweet to the taste and then bitter in the stomach. Okay, so so something that starts out as a pleasurable experience, uh, but when it becomes bitter in the stomach, it has some sort of reaction that you don't like down the road, right? Uh, and, and so so I think we're going to to definitely see that with this. Uh, this message. He's forbidden to write it. Now, this is interesting. Uh, he's forbidden to write it. And that, what would your first, when you, when you hear that, what would your first inclination be that he's forbidden to write it? By whom? The Romans. Romans are done and gone. Romans are done and gone in 476. So we're way past them. They are Italy now. They're making pizza. Okay. Okay. So that there's all these different things that that could that could be forbidden to write, and I think you're actually going to be right. Okay. So so there's this picture. Uh, remember, this is all within a prophecy, uh, and God for it seems almost like God forbids him to write this. I want to draw your attention for one moment to the book of Hosea. What was anybody remember the strange prophecy that went through Hosea? I actually had a couple, but there's one really noticeable one. What did God have Noah or what um, Hosea do as a part of his prophecy? He had to marry a prostitute. Now God didn't want that was not a God-sanctioned like. Uh, uh, I want I want people to go marrying prostitutes. That's that's not what God was trying to signify here. He was trying to signify the idolatry, uh, and eventually this woman became a good woman, had had children, and and became faithful to Hosea. And that was the, the he was trying to signify something. Uh, so so God had a reason, but it wasn't that God was 
spiritually behind it. And I think that's what we're going to see here, is that God is in the in prophetic, the, the prophetic message God is giving him this, don't, don't write this, right? Remember, this is all a dream that he's having. But that it's going to signify something else that is happening at this time period. And I think you're going to end up right on target. Um, it's a mystery. What's a mystery specifically? Not, not what the content of the mystery. What is a mystery? Okay, you don't know the ending. And it's interesting when, um, when the Bible uses the word mystery, it almost always connects it to the revealing of the mystery. It's not just the unknowing of it, like we think, oh, it's a mystery story. Well, the, the reason you read a mystery story is to figure out who done it, right? You know, the, at the end, you don't want, I, we don't know. Sherlock Holmes couldn't solve this one. <laughs> like, oh, man. Hey, that would be a waste of a book. The point is to solve the mystery. And so, so here we're going to see this mystery, but it's going to be revealed. There's going to be some opening. So I want to look at the fulfillment of this. 1450. We talked about no time, right? This is a replica. Um, the, the real one. Uh, the oldest one we have is about 100 years older than this. Invented in um, Mainz, um, and I believe that's France, France or Germany, it's right near the border, I think. Anyway, so we talk about no time. Now, this is interesting, that um, the, the first movable type printing press, there was printing presses before, but they were slow and arduous because you had to carve out all of the letters on a single page. <laughs> it took more time to do than it was worth, almost. <coughs> They can now print off hundreds of pages a day once they have the letters. This is one of the original copies uh, of the Bible. The Bible was the first full document to come off of the printing press. And it's been the bestseller every year since. Um, so you know, you'll, you'll, no, you'll notice that this, the number one New York Times bestseller is never the Bible, uh, except that it always is. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of funny. Uh, it's not the first document to be printed. There was a pamphlet printed uh, on it first. But what they did was they would print a whole bunch of pages. And then they'd print a whole bunch of more pages. So it took, actually, to make 180 copies, it took them several years to, to go through and print all the pages, collate, uh, and then and have these. There's only about 30 copies left uh, that are full. There's some, some partials. In 14... 53, the first pages of the printed Bible go on display. The Pope, Pius, whatever, saw them. When we talk about there being no time, there was no delay. While this great artifact, think of one year. One year, we, have, we talked about that great cannon that brought down the walls of Constantinople and changed warfare forever. And over in Germany a greater invention that has changed information forever, right? One year. I mean, if we talk about, oh, we went from the cart and buggy to, to the moon in 60 years. Yeah, that's nothing. That's nothing. This year is, I mean, outside of the death of, and resurrection of Christ, this year is the most influential year in human history. 
well, that and the fall of mankind in the garden. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, but as far as just pure history, this is an amazing year. There's no time between between that event and this event. And I think that's what the angel is signifying here. He talks about the sea and the land. So I want to back up a little bit in, in history, and we're going to talk about this angel, this this message, because I do think the the little scroll is the scriptures. I think that's. That's what John is, is eating here. Uh, that's going to be sweet. Oh, it's so sweet. But it's going to become bitter. And we're going to get to that. But on the sea and the land, what is that? This is Europe. Now, that's, that's uh, uh, where Mainz, Germany, uh, is where it was invented. But uh, there's two interesting things that come, two events. In London, John Wycliffe... Before the, before the printing press writes an English Bible, it was in the common English. It was not Latin. And it wasn't even high English. It was for common, commoners to read. And that is devastating. That's devastating to the religious establishment. So much so that after he was, a hundred years after he was uh, dead. There was a council in which they determined this was so bad that they dug up his bones, burnt them, and and scattered them in a river. This was devastating to those that had the hold on information. That happened in 1382, if you will, on the sea, on an island, almost the exact same latitude right across the English Channel. About a hundred years later, a guy by the name of Erasmus in Rotterdam, Netherlands, he publishes a Greek New Testament. Up until this time, it was Latin. Latin, Latin, Latin. People didn't even speak Latin anymore. The truth be known, most of your monks were illiterate. They, they didn't even read the Bible in their monasteries. There were all sorts of psychoses from the isolation and, and not talking to people and their vows of you know, silence and all that. And so they just kind of went on tradition, like, a, like, the, like the Jews had gone on, on their tradition for thousands of years. And these two books, Erasmus' book is the source of information for Tyndale's version, for which he got burnt at the stake. Right? So many of the different versions, because it was Greek, and they could go back and look at originals, he corrected so many things from the Latin Vulgate uh, translation that were, that were in error. These two things. Now, I don't know if that's that's the fulfillment of the prophecy, but but this, it's 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 incredibly interesting um, that that we have this kind of reference uh, to to two really the the two keys of the Reformation is what we're talking about, I think, and I think that's what we're going to get into this mystery. We talk about the the being revealed. What's revealed? Is that right, 
talked about that in the high school class earlier okay. about how the mirror, you can barely see it, and then later on you'll be able to see the mirror fully. Sure. And we were referencing that that could be, they only had a glimpse, a glimpse of what the whole entire scripture was like until the Bible was made available. Okay, that's absolutely correct. That's absolutely correct. As the, as the scriptures are produced, people are getting... Uh, a more accurate picture, and that's the idea of this mystery being revealed. No longer could it be contained. And, and trust me, they wanted to. Because when you can control the information, you control the people. And, and, and the Bible was, it's a, it, it was almost a weapon. Right? You didn't want people researching things for themselves. That's dangerous when people can research for themselves because they're no longer beholden to you. They can see all the things that you're doing that don't match up. Right? Uh, so Latin becomes obsolete. It's already really obsolete, but who wants to read a, a Latin Bible? Who wants to try to study Latin, first of all, and it's an extinct language, in order to read the Bible? I've got English. I've got German. I, I, I've, got, I've got it in my... I've got it in French. I've got it in my own language. And so, it was so sweet. It was so sweet to the taste. Now, again, it takes three years to produce 180 copies. Not everyone has one. But just as the copies will proliferate, so will printing presses. And, and it, it, it becomes an exponential explosion over hundreds of years. And it's sweet to the taste. And it produces the Reformation, the, the researching of doctrines. Well, the, the Reformation wasn't perfect, um, but it was um, sweet. Uh, Katie, you know, I forgot to do something today. If you, could, if you could go back. I have some charts that I want to uh, pass out. We, we won't get into them too much today, but I do want you to have them. Uh, Katie will uh, hand those out to you. Uh, it kind of goes through some of the Reformation. I think they're up on the... Yeah, there you go. He's, he's seen it. Um, it becomes bitter. Have ever heard of the Counter-Reformation? Well, people don't sit idly by while people try to change the course of events. If you, if you are the power broker and someone decides to take away your power, there's going to be some resistance. Right? Um, and so there's a Counter-Reformation... John Huss is burnt at the stake in 1415. And that touches things off. At the Council of Trent in 1545, and then uh, there's, it's official, this, this counter-reformation is born there, and it prohibits, um, it, it prohibits being Protestant. It allows them to burn you at the stake. Various things like that, right? And they, they start exiling people who don't uh, who don't give in. You, you can't have your own opinions, and that goes until 1783. The Patent of Toleration uh, was finally signed and, and said, "Okay, we give. We we can't stop it anymore." We, we can't stop these, these scriptures. There, there's too many of them. So, um, uh, 
We have the end of the dark ages. People are learning. And it was forbidden. We back up to the period of time. It, it talks about this, this period of time uh, that, that uh, the, the scriptures are in sackcloth. Right? Uh, as we get into the next chapter, we're going to see that a little bit. These two councils, the Council of Tulas and the Council of Tarragona, um, this actually, the, the Council of Tarragona, there's no picture for it. This is a, a depiction of the trial of Galileo. Uh, uh, there's a reason I selected the picture. It's, it's connected. But the Council of Tulas forbid, and, and it was repeated in the Council of Tarragona, it forbid people to privately own the Old Testament or the New Testament copies, any translations thereof. Can you imagine that? A church saying, you are not allowed to own the Bible. They burnt the Bible. We, we think of atheists burning the Bible. We'll get to that. But it was the Catholic Church throughout this time period that burnt more Bibles than anybody because they did not want... They were, they were collecting these copies because they did not want people to own them for themselves. In fact, it was the Council of Tarragona that authorized the Spanish Inquisition in Tarragona, Spain, which uh, ended up exiling Galileo for daring to suggest that the earth was not the center of the universe. Oh, yeah. So, it became very bitter for a period of time. I want to talk about the two witnesses we, we started reading. Any thoughts before we move into the next chapter? Yeah. Yeah, I've always, I've always been fascinated by the... Um, by the yeah, I, I was trying to find it, but I think, I think it's somewhere in Corinthians where Paul said, you know, we write these things simply so that everyone can understand, right? And yet the, the church, the Catholic church, took... You know, took it upon themselves to say, hey, this is too complicated for you to understand. Right. And interpret it. Well, it, it's not just them. There's a lot of people that, that hold themselves up uh, that way. There's a lot of preachers today that do that. Um, well, you've got to, you, I went to this Bible college, so you've got, to, you've got to know the Greek, and you've got to know the Hebrew, and you've got to know all these things. And, uh, you know, un, unless I've sanctioned it, you know, it's, it's kind of, you, you can't read the scriptures for yourself. How dare you try? You know, you, you need help. So, uh, it, it, it's, it's a common thing. The Jehovah's Witnesses mm -hmm. um, yeah, forbid anybody from reading anything other than what they put out. Yep, yeah, that's true. Uh, my mom always, we had a, uh, my mom be, came to Christ uh, because of a, a, a preacher who gave her tracts every day. She was Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> when I had a chance to uh, start talking, we worked with a bunch of adults that were Catholic, and we were shocked at the amount of stuff they didn't know in the Bible, because basically, yeah, they went there because their parents had to go there, and then they followed their footsteps, and nobody ever read it for themselves. They all just listened. You would be surprised how many religions are, again, like that. It's not one church. Um, there are lots of churches where you can get by just memorizing what you were taught in Sunday school, right? You kind of learn some facts, and you can you can get to adulthood, right? 
without without really knowing it. Right? So, um, I want to talk about these two witnesses, and we're not going to get through this whole chapter, but he says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and an angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there, but leave out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it's been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses. They will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And these are the two olive trees, the two lampstands, standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, the fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. And these have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with plagues as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that arises out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, uh, where also the Lord was crucified. And those from people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies for three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put in the graves. And those who dwell, over, uh, dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, Make merry and send gifts to one another because of these two prophets tormented those who dwell upon the earth. There's some things that we're, we're not going to be able to get into today, but we want to look at some of the details. Uh, some of the details in this part really have more to do with the, the end of this and, and, and some of the more specific fulfillments, and, and we're going to probably get into that next week. Um, what is a rod to measure? Ruler. Okay, a ruler. What's another word? What, 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 what comes to your mind spiritually? Scepter. Scepter. To measure specifically. Right? Spiritually. These are spiritual symbols of something. I believe we're talking about a standard, aren't we? Some, some way. This is, he's, not, he's not up in heaven. right? Now, we're going to talk about the temple. We, we kind of need to... to um, uh, oh, first, let, let's get to this. It's given to John. Who's John? The author of this book. Okay. He's an apostle. And he's actually the last living apostle at this point in time. That's significant. So we have two witnesses, whoever they may be. They're connected to something that is a standard that John is using to measure. To, to, to create this standard. The temple. Now, when John writes this, the temple is destroyed. So he's not talking about the temple in Jerusalem. So what else would the temple be? What else would the temple be, scripturally speaking, if it's not the Jerusalem temple? Okay. The body, yeah. So, so the, the church has composed by individuals. Really, there's not really much of a difference. God doesn't really differentiate between the group and the individual, which is interesting. So John has got a standard, an apostolic standard to, to measure and compare. What is an altar? What do you think of when you think of, again, the altar's gone. And that is, okay, what you sacrifice on. Holy place. What's that? Where you pray at? The holy place. The holy place. So there, all these words are words that surround worship. Hmm, it's getting interesting, isn't it? All these things are, are going to we're going to see they kind of all have to do with one thing. 
So, so John has a standard that, that governs the worship of the church. It's these two witnesses. We talk about prophecy and punishment. Uh, and so we get a message. Remember what we said. These things come from the old, from, from the last chapter. They, they come through. We've already been through some of this. The, these two things are connected. What have we seen candlesticks before? The seven churches. And what does a candlestick do? Hmm? It illuminates. It gives light. Uh, and oil. Where have we seen oil in the Bible? What was oil used to do? Anoint kings. Who else did? Spiritually. Jesus. Remember Jesus said, I am anointed. Right? I'm anointed. That, that was a reference to God. It was a reference to the Holy Spirit. As, as having authority from God. And so all of these things we look at, well, what, who are these two witnesses then? If you look at all these pictures, and, and, and think about what we just talked about in the last chapter, who are the two witnesses? Any guesses? John and the Holy Spirit. What's that? Okay, we're going to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. They're what they were forbidden to have. They were forbidden to have the Old and New Testaments. These two witnesses that testify of Christ, there's, all one, one, there's really no chapter when John writes this. This is all one text. This is the standard which, which the apostles had to govern the worship of the church. That divine message given to mankind. The message that was forbidden. And so we come to this, to this woe. He says they, they, they prophesy in sackcloth for this period of time. We're not going to get into the period of time because that's going to be pretty detailed. Um, but... What does it mean to prophesy in sackcloth? What, is it, what was sackcloth used for? Morning, fasting, and morning. Morning? Okay, what else? Humility. Okay, humility. Um, and I, I think the idea of being obscured, they put ashes on and sackcloth. And, and, and we're going to see that both of these, again, kind of in connection with that same time period. Uh, and it's going to lead up to an event. Uh, that we're going to look at. 42 months, uh, 1260 days, those are the same time period. They used the 360 day, what we would call a prophetic calendar. It was the old Babylonian calendar, right, of 360 days. We know that eventually it was changed to 365, but, but they used it as 360. So uh, we're, we're going to see this actually later, one more time. It's going to, in, in the coming chapters, it's going to talk about three and a half years. Right. It's all the same exact time period. These are all references to the same uh, thing. We're not going to talk about that right now. I just want to mention it. And then it says they're killed. Now, wait a minute. How can the scriptures be killed? Right. We still have them today. And we saw them burnt already. But we're going to see something even more dramatic than that. Um, as we, we look at this, we're, we're looking at an anti- Christian 
force. But he's going to identify what this anti-Christian force is. Um, in just a second, he says they're not buried. What, what would you say if, if something wasn't buried? Why wouldn't you bury something? What? What's that? Well, it says they were killed. Okay. You, you left their bodies out to shame them. It was done by kings a lot. It was done for humiliation. And I think it also signifies it's temporary. Right? And this is not going to be a long-term thing. Uh, in fact, he even talks about that it's going to be for three and a half days. Again, prophetically, that would be three and a half years if we're using that type of uh, symbolism. Again, we'll get to that. What is the great city? Okay, not really anymore. It's kind of run down by now. It was. There have been lots of great cities, actually. It's whatever city is dominant at the time. Whatever city or nation Right? So Rome was called a great city. When, when Babylon, right? Whatever time is, whatever you would draw your attention to. Now, the last events that we saw before today were two movements that swept across and took out the empire. The last remaining bits of the empire was the Saracens from Arabia and the Ottoman Turks, who ended up ending the Eastern Empire. But what's interesting about these is that they were both of those groups were fought by fought back and pushed back by two people from the same country. And we're going to see uh, these are symbolized in Sodom and which perversion, right? And that's the only thing you're really known for. What is Egypt known for? Oppression. Right? That, I mean, spiritually, that's what they're known for. And so we have a great city signified, or a great nation, whatever you want to call it, signified by perversion and oppression that was the dominant influence. These two men fought back the Saracens and the Ottomans, Charlemagne and Napoleon. They come from the same country. France is the dominant, the Franks, as they were called, were the dominant influence in Europe. They, they, anybody know what they, they called them? Charlemagne called himself the ruler of what? The Holy Roman Empire. <laughs> he wanted to create a new thing on the, on the ashes of the old. This is the dominant thing. Well, does anything happen that, that looks like what we've talked about in Europe and specifically in France? Well, let's look at France. In 1789, we have the French Revolution. Now, it started out as just political unrest. Two years later, in 1791, sodomy is officially legalized. It's not new. They become the first modern nation to do so. To legalize we think, oh my goodness, the world is coming. But okay, it's not great. I'm not happy about it. But the idea that we're the first ones to go through this, is, that's not new. In 1793, we begin the reign of terror. So we have oppression. Voltaire wrote this. He said, I am weary of hearing people repeat that 12 men established the Christian religion. I will prove that one man may suffice to overthrow it. And that was his goal. 
to overthrow Christianity. We have an anti-Christian force. He led a campaign to try to get rid of the Bible even before the French Revolution. He died about a decade before the French Revolution or so, almost, almost two. But it's his writings that fuel it and fuel a specific aspect of it, which was the outlawing of Christianity. On November 24, 1793, Christian religion is forbidden. They even changed the calendar to a 10-day calendar so to try to confuse Christians as to what day Sundays falls on so that they can't have their communion. Uh, that's the extent. It's, not, it's going to be temporary. But Christians are killed on the guillotine and forced into exile. They're not buried. The Bibles were burned. And everything was humiliated. They, had a, uh, they, took, they went to Notre Dame Cathedral and, and this, they set up a chair or there was a chair there and they had a prostitute sit in it and, and wearing uh, red, white, and blue. And she was the symbol of reason. Just a, 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 a nation of perversion. And the world rejoices. Right? So he says that the world will make merry. And we're going to close with this. Atheism, you can call it deism, which was basically the same thing. From France, and because of their popularity... Hume in Scotland, Thomas Hobbes in England, write great polemics against Christianity and against the Bible. Holbach in Germany, Mendelssohn, who is in Germany, but he's Jewish, and that's interesting. No longer feeling the need, you know, their own religious roots. Recognize those guys? We, we talk a lot about our, how, our, how religious our founding fathers were. They were deists. Thomas Paine wrote, they, they, they believed in a creator. Jefferson had a, a Bible which he cut out everything that had to do with a miracle or divinity of Christ. It was a very small Bible. Madison, same. The men that wrote our two founding documents. And the world thought that it was over. The world rejoiced. These men went during the, during when, when France was helping the Americans during the, the French Revolution and listened to Voltaire and listened to some of these others talk about Christianity and religion and the Bible. And they came back with these ideas. And we think, oh, we're a Christian nation. No. <laughs> there were many Christians in it. But many of our founders were not. And I want to end with one thought. We take it pretty personal, don't we? When, when, when things are not very religious. There's a statement in the, the discussion of the two witnesses. Whose witnesses are they? In verse 3. Chapter 11, verse 3. This is important. 
My two witnesses. We take it so personal when the Bible's attacked and when atheism is attacked or, or when, when, when Christianity is attacked by, by atheists. We, we take it so personal when, when, when perversions arise in our society and there's disrespect of, of morals. God takes it personal. They're His witnesses. They're witnesses of Him. They're not witnesses of me. Remember that when we go up there, that, that God takes it personal. It's like Samuel. Oh, they've done to me. What are you? They've done to you. Who are you? They've done it to me. These things have been done to God again and again. And He notices it. We act like God doesn't notice it. It's done against God. He notices it. He'll take care of it. We just have to stick with it through the unpleasantness, through the sackcloth, through all the stuff I'd rather not sit through. But God will take care of it all. He'll even it out. All right, we're going to close there.